We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of The Darkened Hour. Here with us today is Mitchell Gray. Mitchell Gray is an attorney, Iraq War veteran, and adjunct professor at the Meandry School of Business at Oklahoma State University. Mr. Gray has been a keynote speaker at professional energy conferences to discuss global energy security in the Middle East and regarding Mexico's oil reforms. He also obtained a graduate certificate in Customs Administration and International Trade from the University of Texas, Rio Grande. He also enjoys studying the Arabic language and culture and is the author of the book, which we're going to talk about today, I Heard You Were Going on Jihad. Mitchell, uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to one very, very minute thing just for accuracy. It's uh, adjunct professor at Oklahoma City University, not Oklahoma State University. Oh, okay. Other than that, everything you read was spot on, and that's all accurate. I apologize for that, but um, well, in this state, uh, they're very sensitive about you know whether it's you know University of Oklahoma, my alma mater, or Oklahoma State. So, definitely wanted to get that one out there. Yeah, there's a long-standing rivalry between yeah. the schools, right? So, yeah. um, I'm I'm a Sooner, not a Cowboy. Right. Oklahoma State, I mean, Oklahoma City University doesn't even have a football team anymore, but they do have the graduate energy program that I've been lucky enough to teach there. So thank you. A little bit of history regarding uh, your profile and who you were. Uh, about last year in the fall, I would say about by, by October, um, a really uh, great 9-11 researcher in his own right, Nelson Martins, uh, referred your book to me. I had not heard of it. And I was always very interested in um, the profile of Zacharias Basawi because that was one individual that I was quite lacking in in regards to the whole picture of the September 11th attacks. When I, when I got the book in October of 2019, um, it was a fairly easy read, but it was very detailed. I, I expected a, um, a, short, uh, a short comparable read, but it really encompassed about the history uh, regarding uh, certain individuals that are really unknown to the public. And we're going to get around to that today. Um, the book is 314 pages. And even though it's hard to find, however, I, I would really recommend this book to even just the layman, not uh, just for the venerable, uh, lengthy 9-11 uh, researcher himself. Um, and so I'll just uh, do the opening salvo regarding a simple question. What gave you the idea to write the book in the first place? Well, th thank you very much. And I've been, I've been asked that 
a, a lot. I think anytime you delve into the um, uh, Byzantine world of the of the Middle East, uh, there's always curiosity. Since here in the United States, you know, and particularly somebody like myself, that I I grew up in the Cold Cold War. When I started the University of Oklahoma in 1978, you know, I was only 17, but this is in the throes of the Cold War. Very little attention was paid to the Middle East other than as background noise, you know, Arab-Israeli, you know, you knew there was an Arab-Israeli conflict and you knew there had been hijackings. I mean, some of the terrorists, but really not a lot of studies um, in, in that. Um, but more specifically to the point on this particular book, to fast forward, um, I, I had decided to start trying to learn uh, some Arabic language in the summer of 2001. And the reason I did that is because my wife was in the chemistry department at the University of Oklahoma, and a lot of the students there were foreign students, and they knew that um, her husband was an attorney. So there was they, they would get questions like, hey, do you think your husband could help me on my immigration problem or my student status. And I was looking for some new areas of law to um, explore at that time. And at the same time, I was always interested in immigration law because of its international character. I loved history and international studies. And I always was, had, been, had become very interested in the Middle East um, as events unfolded. I was in the military the first time or the second time actually in the early 90s during the Gulf War uh, with uh, Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait. So I decided, well, if I'm going to represent these students, you know, maybe it would be uh, good to learn a language. So a lot of them are Middle Eastern. So just sort of an intellectual curiosity to begin studying Arabic. And my wife then told me one day that uh, she knew a gentleman from Kuwait. He was a postdoctoral student. And he told her that it was, you know, his Islamic duty to help people understand, you know, uh, things about uh, his his country and, and religion, and that he would undertake to begin teaching me Arabic at the local mosque in Norman, Oklahoma. So I decided, you know, hey, what the heck? Let's just see what happens. So. I started going to the mosque in Norman, Oklahoma in probably, you know, it was either very late June, early July, very, very hot summer that year, uh, 2001, having no idea, you know, at that time that, you know, the whole, um, my whole life's about to change and really the, everything about America is about to change because these 9-11 attacks are going on and that, that individuals in that mosque you know, were to play a you know significant role um, in events. So as things unfolded, as set forth in the book, you know, 9/11 occurs, and then the same guy that offered to teach me Arabic contacted me the first Sunday after the Tuesday attacks, and said that a brother from the mosque wanted to meet with me because another brother at the mosque had been arrested, and they wanted some uh, legal advice. They indicated that he had been arrested, his name was Hussein Alatas, on immigration charges. So I grabbed legal uh, pad and pen as, as an attorney would with, you know, sort of the curiosity of, of the case. And I went to his Norman house where I'd been several times before socially. And at that point, you know, my life changed because the gentleman that he had with him identified in the book, you know, as uh, 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 Manepta. Um, 
turned out to be a very, very interesting character. And this is what then led me to kind of start doing my own investigation because some of the people at the mosque there were arrested and this was kind of terrifying to me. And I became very interested and I felt like the things that they had been telling me were not checking out. So that just further uh, instigated me to really start uh, looking into this um, with greater detail. Now, the, of course, the name of the mosque is the Masjid al-Salam, is that that's right? Well, the name of the mosque, you know, just, you know, locally, you know, the Norman Mosque, but I think that, you know, it would go by the uh, uh, Islamic uh, Society, the uh, Islamic Society of uh, Norman. It's owned by the uh, North American Islamic Trust, formally, and then informally, it was in a house on Lindsay Street near the university. Since that time, because of the large growing uh, Islamic population, that house was torn down and they've developed a full-fledged uh, mosque, which you know looks like a mosque when you drive by it now. Back then, it was just like, it was a small uh, mosque or masjid in just a residential house there in Norman. Now, uh, you might be the first author who starts even before uh, the largest terrorist operation took place in American history. And right from the beginning of the book, you referred to an individual who goes by the name of Ahmed, Oh, I think you were referring to before. Now, you're protecting his identity here, is that right? Well, I felt that in, in this case, because he was never um, arrested and he doesn't appear in any of the uh, literature or, or documents in any way whatsoever, that... Um, you know, I wouldn't have any reason to reveal his identity. I did develop some suspicions for him. I couldn't develop anything, you know, uh, tangible, you know, to go forward. It just seemed like everybody that he had introduced me to wound up either having some involvement or interest to the um, uh, investigation of 9-11. And then looking back, uh, their demeanors and their attitudes towards me and the things that they said before 9-11 kind of made more sense after 9-11 that to me that they were, uh, you know, that, that he that he affiliated, I would say, with the more radical branch of the people that went. You know, there were a lot of people that attended the mosque that were students at the university that I didn't meet there and just, you know, kind of casually came and went. So, you know, I don't want to paint it that, you know, everybody there was in Al-Qaeda or anything like that. But it seemed like he was affiliating with the more, shall we say, the more serious and sincere uh, Islamists at the, at the mosque. So, um, you know, but I never really found anything on him. But yes, I, you know, decided to change, to use a different name for him. Now, which you did multiple times, were very careful and quite, uh, um, and quite, uh, reasonable to do that because you were you also made it numerous times in the book you asserted that uh well this certain individual um had no links to terrorism and um you didn't just speculate or, or gen generally uh label these people as terrorists because a lot of these people were found to um just commiserate with known terrorists but they weren't involved with terrorism in, in any sense now when you when you met Ahmed it seemed that when you met Ahmed, you came into contact with uh, individuals, nefarious individuals, right down the stretch, like Mujahid Abdul Qadir Manepta, 
And then you did your investigation into Hussein al Atas, and of course, that led you to Zacharias Musawi later. Um, it seemed, I'm going to min, um, manifest the question because you answered uh, previously. I'm going to ask this question. It seemed with each contact, it led you into a wider network that resided in Oklahoma that you previously had no idea about. Right. As I, you know, when I was first contacted and was introduced to uh, Manepta and, you know, the book goes into his, you know, name and his actual uh, Christian name. He was a convert to Islam with an interesting history. So that was the first person that I had detailed contact with who then later, uh, he subsequently was, you know, arrested several weeks after that, which was kind of, you know, terrifying to see that because I was dealing with him and, uh, you know, called his cell phone, he called mine because I was looking, trying to look into Hussein al situation. And so when I read about his arrest and then they described his background and all of that, I became very uh, concerned myself because this was in the early days of the investigation. And I thought, wow, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to see that I'm involved with this guy and they might not know uh, my background or story. And it doesn't seem like they're really taking care always to look into that. So I was a little bit worried that I might somehow get, you know, caught, caught up in, in that. So I sort of just became proactive and, you know, myself, you know, I was contacting people, you know, in the um, FBI and in the, back then it was called the INS immigration national S service immigrate, pardon me, the, you know, Immigration and Naturalization Service uh, to sort of introduce myself and explain what was go going on because I knew my situation, you know, I'm a patriotic guy and was, you know, a veteran at that time and would serve again, uh, you know, but I had just kind of stumbled, you know, into this situation. And to me, it was getting more serious because of the injection of Masawi. But when I met Manepta, he made it pretty plain early that he was, very, very angry in general um, with the United States. He was no doubt about that. And I did not know at that time that he had an extensive background, um, you know, that where his name had come up in other, you know, terrorist situations. Now, to be fair, you know, he was never convicted, you know, of a terrorism crime. And in my book, I, I say so. And as you mentioned earlier, I try to take care as an, as an attorney and as a fair person to be very factual. So the do, the book is very well documented. I even clear up misperceptions about Manepta because you know how the internet and this research is. People put all sorts of stuff out there. So I really tried to, you know, correct the record, you know, in, in fairness. I mean, uh, if somebody's never been convicted of terrorism, I don't think we can call them a terrorist. On the other hand, I think you know, it's fair to say, hey, this person's name came up, at, you know, into this circumstances and to evaluate um, things in, in that light. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. Just to kind of be more the but you're right. The more I looked into the, the situation and the persons that I felt were not being straight with me because I took detailed notes of that interview and I put those notes word for word into the book because I felt that they had some significance um, to the overall you know, historical record. So I, I kept and preserved the notes of that original meeting and I put them word for word, you know, uh, into that. And so later it became clear to me and what disturbed me most of all is I did not feel that they were being straight. My, my personal opinion 
as an experienced attorney was I did not feel that the information they were giving me about Hussein Alatas and why they wanted me to help him was jiving with the facts or later with what was being reported about the activities of some of those persons. So to me, that instigated more investigation. And the more I looked into it, the more this kept opening doors and you know, discovering things uh, about this that were very interesting. Uh, just going by uh, the title of your book, uh, which was a phone call between Hussein al-Attas and Imam al-Haji Nadai, who goes by the name of Abu Mustafa, the Imam at the Masjid al-Salam, where al-Attas was detained by INS services with the line being recorded. Uh, why did you choose this for the title of the book? Well, you, you kind of alluded to, to me, you know, I'm not an experienced author or anything like that. So trying to think of a title to the book, that's not really something I've ever tried to do before. So I thought, is there anything in this story that I could put on a book cover, you know, to kind of condense something that would be interesting to readers? And so when I thought about it, it became pr pretty easy because to me, it was very fascinating that when... Hussein Alatas was arrested. He's with Zacharias Masawi in Minnesota in August of 2001. And so after 9-11, Masawi's being nationally and internationally identified as possibly the 20th, high, you know, like the 20th hijacker, I believe was the moniker that was used. But clearly he's a member of Al-Qaeda and he's a recruiter for Al-Qaeda. So why is this like a young University of Oklahoma student who is uh, of Yemeni ancestry. Uh, he has the same last name as uh, bin Laden's uh, Syrian mother. He's from Saudi Arabia, the country where most of the hijackers come from. Why is this guy on the road and living at a residence in, you know, in sure, in, just outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota, while Masawi continues his flight training? And, you know, he gets arrested under suspicious circumstances. And you mentioned INS. It's interesting there from the legal standpoint, because and I try to explain this in the in the book. When you're arrested in the United States, normally, you know, this is for a criminal offense, and you have constitutional rights. You know, you have Fourth Amendment rights regarding search and seizure. You have Sixth Amendment rights to speedy trial and counsel. Well, when they arrest Alatas, you know, they're really not wanting to hold him criminally because the clock is ticking and he's got certain mm -hmm. constitutional rights, even as a non-citizen, but they get him to admit things that shows he's out of status as an F1 student. And for that reason, they can turn him over to INS and hold him kind of indefinitely on his immigration charges. So he's in jail, but he's being held under INS administrative hold, but you still get your own one phone call, right? So I found it very instructive that here's a young guy, he's arrested with a, a, a terrorist. He himself appears to be, in my opinion, I think he's either joined Al-Qaeda or he's very close to joining Al-Qaeda. He's definitely been recruited into some type of uh, jihad uh, network to be operational. And when he makes a phone call, does he call his family? No, he calls this imam that you already identified, you know, Abu Mustafa. He calls the imam of the Norman mosque. Now, of course, this is going to be recorded, but the imam of the Norman mosque, he's speaking as if it's a personal phone call 
between the two. And I put the entire transcript of the phone call in the book. And very early on, you know, the imam says to Alatas after they mentioned uh, Masawi uh, and the situation there. And he says, Alatas says, uh, you know, Sheikh, you know, we're, we're here. I'm with, with Masawi, but we're okay. And the imam says, quote, I heard you were going on jihad. Now, this is before 9-11. So to me, that was always very informative because it indicates that the imam of the Norman mosque has knowledge and is apparently not the only one with knowledge that Masawi and Alatas are up to, quote unquote, jihad. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the imam or anybody else there has specific information about hijacking planes on September 11th and flying them into various uh, buildings. But it does indicate that these guys, more likely than not, had a priori knowledge that something was up that was going to be against the interests of the United States, if not criminal and terrorist. So to me, that was very, very telling. And I felt that the local media then, and I'll say it now, completely dropped the ball on this information. If a guy like me can find all this stuff out, because I, I don't have anybody helping me, I don't have access to secret information, you know, I'm, but I'm able to get this, they can get it too. And that, to me, if that's not a story, if that's not something for you to take and drive home, then you're, you're a lousy journalist, just to be honest. And, you know, I think we see today it's not getting any better, to be honest about it. So that was really kind of the impetus for the book, saying, hey, there's something going on here. This isn't, this isn't just some local story that you forget about in a month. This, in modern uh, United States history, this is the salient moment. 9-11, it doesn't get any bigger. That's got to be your top story. So I thought, you've got something going on right here to look at, but no one looks at it. So, you know, I, I tried the best I could to fill that void with what I could find out. And that's why I put this out, finally, was just like, you know, I'm just going to make my own record for good or bad on it. And people can judge whether they think the information's, you know, accurate or useful. The, the, I thought the, my personal opinion, I thought that was a perfect title for the book. It's very catchy. Um, and it's also very noticeable. And your story is similar to um, um, an independent uh, journalist down in Florida named Daniel Hopsicker, um, who wrote a book called Welcome to Thailand, who did his own investigation into uh, 9-11 operatives, Mohammed Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, and Ziad Jara, who were called the Hamburg cell. Um, but to, to, to elaborate a little bit further about um, the history of Oklahoma, um, you go into a very detailed chronological history of how Oklahoma became a center for the exploding Arab population. And this is primarily due to the University of Oklahoma offering an expansive course of the petroleum geological engineering and also to the various airline training schools that were there, uh, of course, the infamous uh, Airman Flight School in Norman, where it has a history of sorts, besides Basawi training there. Um, in 1993, an Egyptian named Ihab al-Nawawi um, had obtained a pilot's license at Airman while having personal contact with uh, known triple agent Ali Muhammad from Egypt and uh, Assam bin Laden's personal um, assistant, Wadi al-Hajj while also being the personal pilot to Osama bin Laden. Uh, could you give us a brief explanation as to the growth of the Arab population in Oklahoma? 
yes. Well, you make an excellent point, and and um, you you alluded to to the main issue. Uh, as I mentioned in the book, you know, I tried to, even though it's a short book, tried to bring in a timeline and provide some historical analysis because I, I, having read almost all the major books that came out back then at 9-11, and some of them are good, some of them aren't, but many times the authors, you know, they don't really have, you know, a, a, a strong background of the Middle East or Arabic language or anything um, like that. And I felt that sometimes that um, they didn't really provide enough uh, background. So I, I tried to do a little bit of that. And so to me, it's very critical to look at, you know, why we're having, you know, a, you know major terrorist attacks on the United States interests. And, you know, it's not something to be glossed over when you really examine it, because it's, it's relevant to the, to the situation, uh, even, even today. So to me, it was key that after World War II, the United States m made simply the policy decision by, by FDR, based on advice from Harold Ickes, his petroleum administrator during the war, and he says, hey, sir, we had enough oil for this war, and oil helped us win the war, but going forward, both for our industrial capacity and for our national security needs, in the next big war, we will not produce enough oil domestically here to meet those needs. So, as a result, President um, Roosevelt, in one of his last acts before he died, literally goes on to a United States battleship where he meets the uh, uh, basically the king of Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, Ibn Abdul Aziz. So here's the leader of the free world getting together with the leader of the uh, Arabian Peninsula, the guardian of the two holiest shrines of of Mecca, but a very, very backward country, but with tremendous oil reserves. And by the way, and I might point out those oil reserves that were identified in Saudi Arabia in the 1930s as being very vast was done by the preeminent oil geologist uh, who uh, pioneered the development of the University of Oklahoma School of Petroleum Geology. I, I, I think his name is DeGoyer, Everett DeGoyer, a little bit rusty on that history. So you had this already, so you had the strong Oklahoma background in oil because of our own oil history. In the 1920s, at one point, Oklahoma's the top oil producer really in, in the world. You know, you don't have the Middle Eastern oil. So after the, after the war, uh, it's decided to go into Saudi Arabia and basically get an oil for security arrangement, which was done. At that point in time, uh, after the war, this opened up educational opportunities for young Saudis and other, you know, Gulf Arab uh, individuals to come to the United States so they could learn the petroleum uh, industry. So if you're a rich uh, Saudi prince and you've got a son and you say, hey, the future is going to be in oil, you're going to send him to places like the University of Oklahoma so they can learn about, um, you know, geology and petroleum engineering and things of that nature. So as a result, starting in the 1950s, the University of Oklahoma, you know, had a fair amount of, you know, Middle Eastern students here for um, those, those studies. And as a result, uh, an infrastructure developed at that time. Well, you know, we don't have Al-Qaeda at that time. And in the 1950s, you know, Islamism uh, as a strong... Um, movement isn't really that strong so nobody's really you know too terribly worried about this it's it's the cold war 
but that infrastructure did develop in terms of small mosques that developed Arab associations. And I was told by some professors later that are retired that even a little Muslim Brotherhood cell had developed at the University of Oklahoma back in the 50s. So those would be the seeds that had been planted. Then when the 60s came, when you get into the late 60s and 70s, things are heating up around the world because of the uh, Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, and then sort of at that point, the rise in, in terrorism, and then ultimately the Iranian Revolution in 1979, a more radical form of Islam starts. Well, in the places where you already had that infrastructure developed, a certain percentage of those individuals were attracted to those ideas. And then from there, uh, they had contacts that went back to their home country. So if you then put the layer on top of that was part two, Oklahoma's strong aviation background, going back to Will Rogers and Wiley Post in the early days of that, and due to some powerful senators, I mean, the uh, area was able to bring in Tinker Air Force Base. And as a result, a lot of private training facilities operated. So, you, th so this confluence of oil and gas and aviation is sort of a perfect storm later when you see that, that that's what the terrorists wanted. They wanted to have, you know, uh, do attacks here and attack aviation. So that's how Oklahoma, kind of a long version, but that's kind of how Oklahoma got onto the map. And as you pointed out, again, it almost never appeared in any local media stories here. Why was there no curiosity to do further reporting that, hey, we've got Muhammad Atta and Marwan al-Shehi and Zacharias Masawi all have been in Norman, Oklahoma and visited the flight school, something might be up. Wouldn't it be interesting? Oh, well, bin Laden's personal pilot, Ihab Ali, he went here in the early 90s and he goes on to be involved in the East Africa embassy bombings. And you mentioned involved with Ali Muhammad, the triple agent who's in the United States military while working as uh, Al-Qaeda's you know, intelligence chief, you would think that that would again say, hey, let's look more deeply into what's going on here. And I think there, if you do that, it brings, and my book goes into great detail, two very, very radical Islamic conferences held in Oklahoma City, both before the Oklahoma City bombing, which clearly shows that this local infrastructure does have radical elements because the co-founder of what became Al-Qaeda, the, the fiery Palestinian cleric and mentor bin Laden and former professor at King Abdul Aziz University in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, uh, um, Abdullah Azam, is here in Oklahoma City raising funds for jihad in 1988. And by the way, you, Wadi Al-Hajj, who becomes very important in terrorism, he's in Oklahoma City. Uh, Mahmoud Abu Halima, who's convicted later in the terrorism plots in New York City, is here. So you've got these meetings of some of the worst terrorists uh, that have attacked the United States in Oklahoma City in 1988. And then in 1992, the overall leader of Hamas, um, uh, I think it's Khalid Mishal, is leading a conference here. And then, and again, no stories done in the Oklahoma City media on this. Khalid Mishal's brother, his half-brother, but his you know, half-brother is an engineer at the Oklahoma Department of Transportation, 
uh, graduate of Oklahoma State University, marries an Oklahoma woman, and at the same time, he's the top fundraiser for the Hamas terrorist organization in the United States, and he's doing this out of Oklahoma City. And he's one of the co-founders or one of the co-incorporators in 1993 of the main mosque in, in Oklahoma City. So this is very, very interesting that by 1993, the top leaders of what became Al-Qaeda and Hamas have already been to Oklahoma City conducting conferences, which included further propaganda of their cause, recruiting, fundraising, networking, you, you name it. So to me, this, this was huge about what was going on here. And again, in the local media, crickets. Right. It's, this seems to be like a repetitious issue with the media. Um, while I was reading your book, there was numerous instances where I was even aw unaware of, and I like to think that I do a little bit of research, invigorating research, but um, that's what was more, that's why I consider your book quite valuable in its regards to that there were numerous instances where the media had covered up even um, to the early foundations of pre 9-11 terrorists that were in Oklahoma City at the time. Um, just to elaborate a little bit, I'd like to get your opinion on why do you think the media had uh, negated to report these stories to the public? Well, of course, I'm just gonna speculate on that. I, I made efforts um, to talk to several of them and uh, met with a couple. I felt that um, at least in one instance with a very uh, dedicated TV reporter in Oklahoma City back in the 9-11 days and a little bit forward, and I'll just give a shout out. Her name was uh, Tamara Pratt. I felt that she was one of the more uh, courageous ones. She's the one that interviewed uh, Manepta right before he was arrested and he gave the infamous TV interview where he said that he was a good friend and he ate with him at the mosque every day and that he was just being made a scapegoat. I think he was arrested the next day. Pro probably not a good decision to give that interview, but Tamara Pratt did that interview. She had contacted me uh, several times and she was very interested in covering the, the stories. Well, I put at the end of the book when you had this unusual situation where a guy named Joel Henricks III uh, blew himself up uh, with a basically a suicide vest using the same type of substance, which I believe is a PETN bomb that you would see used on the, you know, Gaza Strip area for for their uh, intifadas and whatnot. He blows himself up outside a packed football stadium at the University of Oklahoma. Eighty thousand people in attendance. There was circumstantial evidence that he tried to enter the stadium as rebuffed. He sits on a park bench. He's fiddling with the stuff, and it's a very, very volatile mix. And he blows himself up. He decapitates himself. And this occurs during, during the football game itself on October 1st, 2005. Well, I get a call that night from Tamara Pratt, the reporter, and she says, Mitchell, well, maybe now we'll be able to do, do those stories because I'd contacted her just a few weeks earlier I said, these cells, in my opinion, are still active. Would you want to do a follow-up story? So she brought her news reporter down to my office. And I'm sitting, we spent several hours going over all the documents, which later are put in my book that we're talking about today. So the, the reporter, she was gung-ho for it, but her, um, her immediate supervisor, you know, kind of the, you know, uh, director of news, 
I think she was convinced, but she said, well, she goes, the only problem with this is she goes, I think this would kind of come across as un-Islamic. And I said, well, I said, you have to look at it like this. I said, this is not about religion. We're talking about um, terrorism that's occurred. You've seen the evidence. These are just facts. I said, this is not a, an indictment of, of a religion. Now, it just so happens that the people that we're talking about, you know, are, are Muslim, but that's just the way that it, that it is. We can't, you know, we can't be so politically correct that we won't report on stories or report on the facts. I said, you can vet this information. If the information's not good, don't run it. If it's good, you know, I think the public has a right to know. So I felt, um, and, and I know this probably isn't a complete answer, but I feel political correctness um, has, has played a role in this. And also, I think the way we see the media today, they want, they want instant news, they want sound bites. It seems like there's not as much dedication to some of the in-depth reporting. The other thing is, I think the groups like CARE, the Council of American Islamic Relations, and other groups, I think are so strong, they threaten litigation against these entities. Uh, even going back to the Oklahoma City bombing, Jaina Davis was dragged through years of litigation, even though she won the cases that I know affected her uh, mentation quite a bit from having to go through that. And I think these news organizations, it's just not really maybe worth it for them if they feel that, that they're being pressured. I think also political persons uh, maybe put pressure on them for maybe for national security reasons saying, well, this might, if we do this, this might hurt our relations with this or that country. So I think it's, a, it's probably a very complex combination of reasons, but that's just my personal opinion. Nobody's ever told me, you know, what the reason is. That's just the best I can come up with for why. But I think individual reporters are interested, but it's just like with the FBI. A lot of great field agents are out there every day, great patriotic people, and I've, I've worked, you know, or I've seen some of them work, and I've, I've helped them. I've never been a member of the FBI, but I tried to help them out a little bit with what I knew. And, and they're gung-ho, and they want to do stuff, but, you know, at the end of the day, they get stovepiped up at the chain of command. So I think you see that both in the media too. Probably a lot of good reporters out there would like to do these stories, but they aren't really getting permission to carry them out to fruition for any number of reasons. That's a sound answer because I saw that in uh, George Tenet's response to Richard Clark just hours after 9-11 text, where Richard Clark actually um, tells Tenet, did you know about the Saudis on the list, or the pastor's list? And he says, yes, we need to get the Saudi bin Laden family out of Massachusetts and Kentucky and other states that they were in because we wanted to protect Saudi interests. And I think that's what happened here with the media covering up some of these stories, where they wanted to protect Saudi interests and not inflame uh, Muslim persecution, which was um, quite uh, extensive after the 9 attacks. I, I lived in New York. I still live here. And I was in Brooklyn at the time when the attacks happened and I saw um, instances where people were firebombing gas stations. Um, but I'm going to modify my next question, dude, because you answered a little bit earlier. And it's going to be um, when your investigation at Al-Athas, it led you to um, the entity that you mentioned earlier, which was the North American Islamic Trust, uh, which is a nonprofit organization created by the... Um, Muslim Students Association in 1973. 
Nate, uh, which I'll use that name for short, Nate also owned most of the mosques in Oklahoma. And one of the more infamous uh, investigations by the FBI was the Holy Land Foundation case in 2007, in which the North American Islamic Trust, Nate, was an unindicted co-conspirator. Can you give us a little bit of background regarding the North American Islamic Trust? Yes, uh, and it's interesting you mentioned that because at one time, back when I was doing the research, the, um, um, the executive leader of Nate was a guy named Dr. Mujib Chima, who ironically is from Oklahoma. So you had an Oklahoma connection to Nate. Uh, Chima is a very common name in uh, Pakistan, and he was a physician, but he was, I believe, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, we don't want to get derailed here, but I, I had another friend that did a lot of research about uh, Mr. Chima, and apparently he had some links that went back to the Iran uh, Contra situation, but we won't go down that uh, rabbit hole, but very interesting. Nate, Nate was established, you know, it is a Saudi entity, and what they did is they they looked at the situation in the United States and they said, okay, here's what we've got. We've got a patchwork quilt of just bunches of little mosques and masjids. Uh, masjid is the Arabic word for uh, a mosque. And I, you know, it's typically maybe a, a smaller mosque, but those words are interchangeable in every day. So they saw that there was just a lot of little mosques and masjids. Some of them, again, like the Norman mosque, just somebody's house. And they maybe would have an imam and just a few members. And I believe they felt that, well, we need to really kind of consolidate resources and we need to take control of the um, you know, situation here in the United States, particularly since the most powerful Sunni ulema and I don't want to get too Arabic here, but ulema is simply an Arabic word that would refer to uh, like the uh, scholars, you know, the top, you know, clerical type. I mean, Sunni Islam doesn't really have the formalities that you would see like in Christians where you say, you know, bishops and we have popes and things like that. But the ulema would be learned, would be learned religious men there. And they wanted to have uh, more control um, over the situation, over the Muslims in America. So Nate, North American Islamic Trust, is a trust. So it was set up where they would go around and they would buy up all the uh, mosque properties in the United States, and then they would hold legal title in trust. And then they would allow uh, these local mosques, you know, they would probably get more access to funding and try to build better mosques. But in Saudi Arabia, there would be some control over who could be the imam. The imam would be sort of the Christian equivalent of saying, if you talked about your church, you might say, well, who's the reverend, you know, or who's the pastor of the church? Again, it's not quite the same, but imam in Arabic just means like in front of. It's the guy that gets in front of the Muslims and delivers the Friday prayer and pr provides ministerial service services. So this gave them control over who could be that imam. Well, in Saudi Arabia, they have long had the, the deal with the uh, Wahhabis. So it meant that the imams kind of had to pass muster, if you will, that they were offering the you know correct form of 
of, of, of Islam. So by, by buying up all these properties and then holding them in, in trust, it gave more control over the American Muslim population and their places of worship that it could be controlled from uh, Saudi Arabia. Now, you get into the deal where they deny that they have X amount of control and others say they have complete control. So I can't sit here and say I know for sure. But if you do the legal research, say just in a state like Oklahoma, the largest mosques would be in Oklahoma City, Norman, Edmond, and Tulsa, because those would be really the four biggest population areas. And all those mosques or Islamic centers, if you do the legal research, every single one of them is owned legally by the North American Islamic Trust. And so that's pretty similar throughout the country. So I've read that like maybe up to 80% of the uh, mosque network in the United States is legal title is held by a Saudi entity. I hope, does that answer it? No, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot more elaborate than I than I thought it would be. Yeah. Um, and it and it now now just to make it clear, um, you're not suggesting that uh, they were purporting Wahhabi ideology on purpose in hopes of creating terrorism. It just became that there was an after effect uh, regarding um, building these institutions in Oklahoma. Yeah, I mean you want to be you know certainly careful of of just saying Wahhabi means, you know, terrorist. It certainly does not, um, you know, however, there are within, you know, when people talk about Islam, you know, some people then understand, okay, they're Sunni and they're Shia. Although when I ask a lot of people, do you know the difference between a Sunni and a Shia? They, they do not. So there's really even a lot of ignorance about that. But then if you say Sunni and Shia, you have to really, subdivide it more because within Sunni Islam, there's at least five major uh, uh, madhabs or denominations, various schools of thought. And the people that evaluate those, you know, they assign, you know, various terms that, well, this is a little bit more tolerant brand of Islam. This is a little bit more, uh, you know, radical or extreme version. But, you know, it always depends on your viewpoint. I mean, if you grew up in Saudi Arabia or Egypt, I mean, you know, you obviously have a different view than if you're looking at it, say, if you're a CIA analyst or somebody, you know, uh, you know, at the FBI taking um, a, a look at it. But it's fair to say, if you certainly look at the history in Saudi Arabia, that this, you know, this is a conservative brand of Islam. And that conservative brand of Islam would tend to put people maybe more inclined to follow uh, teachings of people like uh, you know, Sayyid Qutb. And then from there, it's maybe a shorter leap to maybe start ascribing to uh, somebody who comes along with even more radical theories. So, you know, it, I'm, I'm not in any way saying that, you know, one means the other, but particularly maybe young Muslims in the United States that are confused they're maybe more vulnerable, you know, to the to the recruitment if if they already are starting at a level where they've got a pretty conservative view of of, of the religion. But these are very general concepts, you know, and you always have to just sort of look at each person on their own for what their, you know, the reasons are that they decided to get with those organizations. I think you and I've discussed before one of the focuses in my future book 
will be that I, I think the role of Islam was underrated back in the 60s and 70s in terms of even looking at PLO and Fatah and groups like that. But I think it might be a little overrated to today because the ultimate aims of these groups from the 60s, 70s and today are pretty sim similar. And, and Islam is kind of used, I think, sometimes to, uh, you know, accomplish those goals. It seems to be uh, after the 79 Iran revolution, uh, a little bit easier to make inroads using um, Islam. But, you know, it's a very old religion. There's what, what is there, 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. So it'd be impossible to make too much uh, genera generalities about it. Right. Just, and just to add in the future, this is something that um, I would like to extrapolate a lot further with you in a, in a future discussion regarding... Sure the role of Islamism in, in, in uh, how it visited the United States. Onward to Zacharias Masali, um, suspected 20th hijacker of the 9-11 operation. A little bit of uh, his background. He joins the Al-Mujaran, militant Salafi jihadist network in the United, States, uh, United Kingdom in 96. In 98, he goes to Pakistan, trains at the Khaldeen trading camp in eastern Pathkia province near Torabur, Afghanistan, where he meets with an al-Qaeda operative, Ahmed Rassam, who was later involved with the 2000 Millennium Plot, um, where he was to be bombing the LAX uh, Los Angeles International Airport. Flights, he then f uh, flies to Chechnya, and then on, on February 23, 2001, Musawi then lands at O'Hare Airport in Chicago, gets a connecting flight to Norman, Oklahoma, and according to your book, Musawi has a notebook of contacts inside Edmond, Oklahoma. Um, we spoke about this previously, about how he obtained them. But can you give us an explanation as to who you believe may have assisted him prior to him coming here and giving him this information? Yeah, that's a very good summation that, that you gave on a very interesting person um, in 9-11, even though he wound up not being a hijacker. Certainly his arrest and everything that we learned indicate that, um, you know, he, he potentially could have been a real Rosetta Stone had it been handled differently uh, back in August of two, 2001. And of course, you can't talk about Masawi without his extensive time and contacts in um, Norman. So everything that you said was, was true. What, what I could add about it is what I, when I was doing the research uh, about Masawi, what I thought was interesting is, like you said, he's got this extensive background. So he's clearly a member of Al-Qaeda. He's been to Chechnya. He's recruited. He's been in the camps. I mean, so, I mean, he's, he's full on board. Okay. Now we know, or actually I say those that research this and read a lot about it know that at that time, um, you know, areas of Pakistan were basically under the control uh, of extremists, um, particularly in the tribal areas and areas near Afghanistan. So we know in Afghanistan and Pakistan that they just were um, loaded with terrorist training camps so that individuals that travel to that area, you know, raises alarms about why they would be there because these are not places you would go if you're, uh, you know, a young Muslim male leaving your country or it raises very strong suspicion that you're going there uh, to, to, to train. So 
you know, we, we, we know that Masawi is coming out of those camps. Now, we know that what's interesting is we learn a little bit about how those camps operate because they also are a little bit tied to the Pakistani ISI, which would be their intelligence services and other, other entities. So when they've set up those, you know, so-called, quote-unquote, al-Qaeda training camps, they bring in the foreigners, and what do they do? They turn over their passports, they turn over identification, and this allows al-Qaeda to uh, engage in forgery, document fraud, uh, and other criminal-type activities to make their operatives uh, be able to uh, operate globally. They provide, you know, fake addresses, nom de jures, I mean, all the stuff that, that you could sit down and just write out saying, hey, if I were going to form global terrorist operations, you know, how, how would I do this, you know, logistically? And the reason I give that background is that was important to understand uh, Masawi's importance to what he knew when he came here, because I always thought, like, why is a guy who is a Moroccan uh, uh, al-Qaeda guy why is this guy suddenly showing up in Norman, Oklahoma? I mean, this guy wouldn't have been able to find Oklahoma on a map. He's not coming here for the Cowboy Hall of Fame or to go see an OU football game or, or you know, anything like that. You know, he's coming to a flight school. Well, we already know the flight school is on the Al-Qaeda radar map, okay? Well, you're going to send this guy here. Does he have anybody uh, that he can contact. So with that in mind, I wanted to look very carefully at Masawi coming here because to my knowledge, he's never been to the United States before. He leaves Pakistan in about February of 2001. He flies to Chicago O'Hare Airport, but he doesn't do anything. He's just connecting a plane. From there, he lands at Will Rogers International Airport, which that's the airport that services Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, our major airport. So from there, I looked at, at Masawi. So he's picked up by another Muslim gentleman who was an instructor at the uh, Norman Air School. And from there, he's driven from Oklahoma City to Norman. And that's, depending on the traffic, I mean, that's like a 15, 20-minute trip. I mean, Norman is just south of there. So he's taken and he's dropped off at what's called the uh, like the OU uh, motel, and it's just a simple little motel here in uh, Norman. So he's dropped off there, and he's apparently registering, or he's already registered to take the flight classes. Well, I was able to find out his phone records when he got to this motel, and the first call that this guy makes, uh, I looked up the phone number, and when I looked up the phone number, I was pretty stunned because the phone number that he called from Norman, Oklahoma. So again, to recap, an Al-Qaeda operative flying in from Pakistan to Oklahoma for the first time, the minute he gets to a motel room, he calls a number and it is to, um, I believe it is to the, what's called the, what's called the uh, Masjid As-Salam uh, in Edmond, Oklahoma, which is just another little residential house. If you looked in the phone book, you know, you're not really going to fi find a presence for this. You'd have to know about it in advance. This is not anything that is is prominent. So that told me he was told uh, that he was told to call that number. Well, that was interesting to me because something we haven't talked about, although it's in the book, 
I already had done a lot of research on that entity. And I want to be careful like I was in the book. I'm not accusing or saying anybody at that mosque has been arrested for terrorism or is a terrorist. I'm just saying the phone records indicate he, he called that entity. Well, what was interesting to me was I'd already researched that entity because the people that had helped incorporate it several years before to, were, were to me very interesting because they had connections that I thought put them uh, in very close proximity to both Mr. Manefta that we talked about earlier, as well as to um, uh, uh, Mufat Abdul Qadr, who was the half-brother of the Hamas leader that came to Oklahoma, who had been a co-founder of the Oklahoma City Mosque, because these people that had been incorporators of this Edmund entity they both worked at the Oklahoma Department of Transportation. So I thought, wow, this, this agency keeps, you know, popping, popping up here. Uh, what was further interesting to me is the very first day I was contacted by Ahmed and Manepta about Alatas, I learned that another Muslim had been arrested at the Norman Mosque, and his name was Mukarm Ali. But they didn't seem to really have much interest in him just in Hussein Alatas, but I'd written down in my notes about Mukarm um, Ali. Now, they told me he was from India, which I believe is another, uh, misrepresent another misrepresentation. But nonetheless, his name became very important to me years and years and years later. It just, it just was sort of in the background on my notes. It's there. I never thought he was important. They didn't think he was important. There's no news stories. It's just the name that's hanging out there until Masawi gets here. Okay, now Mukarm Ali was from, had addresses in Edmond, Oklahoma, which is where this mosque was. Okay, so that raised a little bit of an eyebrow. But then it became um, apparent that there was much more to this because Masawi had what's called a pocket pal, which is just some sort of uh, calendar that you write on. And these were entered into evidence as exhibits at his trial. So this is public record, but it would not mean anything to you if you didn't know some of these details. But you could go online and Google Masawi trial and go to all the exhibits and plow through them and find this information, which is what I did but it meant something to me because I know who these people were. Well, I'm going through meticulously all this information and it's interesting because in his pocket pal, before he gets to Oklahoma is Mukarm Ali's name and number. And so to me, that was a very huge moment. I said, because if this is true, if this is true, this means that when he was in Pakistan, somebody like, and this is the most likely scenario to me, it would make sense that somebody in Al-Qaeda that uh, was sending Masawi to Oklahoma gave him the necessary contact information. And it appears to me that when he got here, he began contacting some of the local people to get in contact. So I want to be careful. I'm not saying that that those people are necessarily, you know, terrorists or this and that, but it appears just from the documentary record and from the dates that Masawi came here armed with names and numbers 
uh, in Oklahoma for him to contact. So to me, the logical connection would be if an Al-Qaeda terrorist is coming to the United States for terror operations and he's got information of people to contact in Oklahoma, I don't think it's too naive to think that those are people sympathetic, I'm not saying they're terrorists, but sympathetic uh, to what maybe Masawi is is up to if that if you see, if you get my drift on this sure. so i know that's a little bit um kind of um i don't know if that comes across complex but that to me was what was so important about masawi's arrival here were these contacts and what he did at in those early moments and again that's not anything that i learned about until years and years later uh in in my research right and, and from there, Masawi would um, then find Airman Flight School. And his personal instructor there was a person by the name of Shoaib Nazir Kassam. Now, months prior to Masawi uh, going to the school, um, Muhammad Atta uh, and Marwan al Shahi, the pilots for American Airlines 11 and United Airlines 175, they received their commercial ratings here. And Kassam knew both of the men while he was a student himself before becoming an instructor. However, Masawi fails at obtaining a license at Airman Flight School and then travels along with Hussein al to Egan, Minnesota, and they take residency at the residence inn while Musawi immediately sends emails to the managers at the Pan Am International Flight School. Now, could you tell the listeners what transpires here at the school and how the Minneapolis FBI became involved? Well, first of all, uh, just to be clear from, because if, if I understood you um, correctly, and this is not contradicting what you're saying, I'm just going to say what I know. As far as I ever knew, uh, Muhammad Atta and Marwan al-Shehi spent at least two nights at the same motel that um, Masawi did, and that they both visited the airman flight school, but did not really enroll and go forward. Now that's as far as my information went on their experience here. They definitely were here. Now what's interesting is when I was assisting the uh, joint terrorism task force, and I always am clear, you know, I was never employed or paid by or anything on that. This was simply providing information as, as I think as a patriotic citizen to, to them. Um, one bit of information that I did get was that I was told, I never saw documents, but I was told by the FBI agent, who I, by the way, found to be very patriotic, very hardworking, and very credible and honest, and the highest integrity, and still is. Um, I was told that Muhammad Atta had been using the Norman Flight School as his address on his immigration paperwork. Um, in addition to that, uh, just as a side note, and I put this in the book, the connections to the various hijackers to Oklahoma area and, you know, some that are overlooked, like, and I'm looking now on it, at, on the timeline, Fayyid uh, Ahmed, a 9-11 uh, hijacker, according to the New York Times in your area, in an article by Christopher Drew, uh, you know, he was using the uh, Spartan Aeronautics Flight School in Tulsa, Oklahoma as his address. Muhammad Ahmad al-Ghamdi uh, also used that Tulsa, Oklahoma 
uh, at address. And of course, uh, Nawaf Al-Hazmi also was given a speeding ticket in Oklahoma. And many, many believe he was coming to meet with Masawa, Masawi and possibly uh, Alatas in Oklahoma. So you had these other 9-11 hijackers that had Oklahoma connections as well as that. Now, as, as for uh, Masawi, as I understand it, he did his basic, like his basic training here at the Norman Flight Academy, but then he wanted specific training on the 747, and that's why he went to Minnesota. Now, what's interesting there, though, is now why did Hussein Alatas go with Masawi to Minnesota? I was told later, Ahmed and Manepta, that Alatas was, was a valid student at the University of Oklahoma. It was important that I find him so he could come back and finish his degree, you know, that he was about to get a degree in math. That later turned out also to not be accurate based on the information uh, that, that I received. So I also wondered, now, why is Alatas with Masawi? The story I was told was Masawi did not have transportation to Minnesota and that as a good Muslim brother, Hussein Alatas volunteered to take him to Minnesota. But that doesn't answer the question why he's living with him in a residence inn. It doesn't answer the question why he's filling out, with Masawi's help, a visa to go to Pakistan to visit with religious scholars who discuss the validity of jihad. It doesn't explain why he wrote a will, which I reproduced in my book, which reads like the same wills that were written by the other 9-11 hijackers, like uh, like uh, Muhammad Atta. Uh, what it sounds like is that Alatas has left the University of Oklahoma, and as the imam said, he's going on jihad. Now, in Minnesota, a flight instructor becomes very alarmed that Masawi does not have any interest in how to land a 747, but only how to take off. And he asked questions, security questions with that. At the same time, they said, this guy is not like other students. He is not being sponsored by anybody. He is paying in cash. He doesn't really have any explanation why he wants to know this, other than he's just got a general interest in aviation. So the instructor realizes that something is not right, contacts the FBI. That's when they come and they interview Alatas and Masawi separately. And Alatas kind of caves in a little bit, although he lies to the authorities. He's later, you know, pleads guilty to that. But he also says, well, you know, Masawi follows an imam that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't agree with, which I would say uh, was an, an understatement. So I don't know if that, I, I know I added on to your question, but it's like, if I think of this and if I don't say it, then I won't get to it. And I wanted to make some of those other points strongly about, again, why there was just simply no really journalistic interest to ask these questions about why Alatas is going to uh, Minnesota. I mean, they told I me, mean, Manepta told me that one of the reasons they needed him back was that he was teaching children at the mosque and the children missed him so badly. I mean, come on. I mean, that's not, that's not at all reasonable to uh, be believe that. I, I believe that the instructor's name was Clarence Prevost, if, I, if I'm correct. That name sounds familiar, so I think you probably are on top of it. Now, the F I think the lead FBI agent into the Masawa case was Hammy Samet. And he begins, yes. a, right, he begins a draft of FISA warrant 
which begins with a FISA application. I'll elaborate a little bit what this is. That requires a court to find probable cause that the target of the surveillance, which would be Massawi, be a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. And they needed to do this to search Massawi's laptop and personal belongings that were found in the residence in. Um, Samet's memo is sent to the Radical Fundamentalist Unit, or the RFU, which is led by Mike Maltby. And you discuss this really intricately in the book, that both Maltby and Rita Flack then send a request to the National Security Law Unit headed by Marion Spike Bauman regarding a search warrant for Masawi's laptop. However, in the memo, Maltby had edited the request in which the memo was now an immigration issue and not a criminal one. Editing out was Massawi's link to Al-Qaeda in Chechnya under Ibn Qatar. Dave Frasca, the RFU chief, doesn't attend the meeting, and the decision to approve is left with Bauman and Mike Baldney, ultimately, who deny the FISA application based on lack of evidence. Now, was this decision to deny the warrant based on differing legal interpretations, or was there something more in which Kylie Riley later in a letter to Minneapolis, uh, Minneapolis alludes to in her letter to Director Mueller in May of 2002. You know, I try to not make political comments, but I'm, I've got to make just one allusion here just because to me, it's just the low hanging fruit. I, I think at the end of the day, when we kind of pull back and we look at how decisions are made in Washington, D.C. and how much politics or political correctness get into it, that you could almost make a wisecrack saying that if they wanted to search Masawi's laptop at the FISA warrant, they should have alleged that he was working for the Trump campaign. Uh, you know, so it's just interesting how uh, the uh, uh, FISA situation, uh, how that can be used, because for Masawi, they didn't get it. Now, from a purely legal standpoint, you know, I'm, I'm enough of a lawyer to pull back a little bit and say, you know, not having been involved in all the legal reviews that uh, I'm not really an expert on that. Now in the book, I do trace because of my legal uh, background, I do try to provide the reader with some of the legalities of the FISA warrant. But I think the thing that's most important there, and my feeling is the wrong decision was made and it should have been granted. But I understand later, some people said, well, when they wrote up their warrant, they, they, they made some technical mistakes. So met, Maybe from a purely legal technical standpoint, maybe there were some flaws with the warrant. But what's also in the book later is in the after action report. And I think that th there were several, you know, there was the big house committee report. And I think the DOJ did one or maybe the inspector general. It's in the book. I'd have to kind of refresh. But they said as to the Masawi situation and searching the laptop and the FISA warrant, they said what should have been alleged and they felt it would have been a sl slam dunk was based on what went on. They should have alleged that there was an Al-Qaeda cell at the Norman Mosque. And then voila, they clearly would have had their uh, nexus to meet the legal standard. But um, my non-legal opinion, just as a citizen, uh, and from what I know, I feel that, you know, on a, that, that the fact that Massawi was already known to have contacts with a foreign terrorist organization and that under the circumstances for which he was here, when you put all that together, I think the wrong decision was made. Now, if it turns out, you know, there were some legal loopholes, they didn't dot their I's, cross their T's, 
that somehow didn't matter years later in some of the more current political situation. So it may sometimes determine um, just who has the final legal review or what judge you go before. I mean, I know as a practicing attorney throughout my career, sometimes your case just depends on what judge you're before. One judge would grant it, one wouldn't. So it's probably uh, got a lot more complexities than the average person would know on it. But we, we have to ask as citizens, at the end of the day, a guy that was pretty much a known uh, terrorist, why can't we search his laptop? I think most people would say that that was a big ball drop. Now, if Agent Smead and others, you know, if they needed help in redrafting that warrant, to me, that would have been an easy fix. You know, they could have got, you know, the attorney, an attorney to review it or something. So I really can't buy in the end that this should all be turned down for some, you know, technical reasons, because I think enough was there that clearly the spirit behind why FISA warrants would be granted would be met. And if there were a technical flaw, just send it back quickly for a correction and go forward, because clearly uh, it was, uh, in, in my opinion, another ball drop in this investigation that that at the time might have led to very valuable information regarding uh, other individuals and operational plans. Right, and, and just to expand on that, because you hit the nail on the head regarding uh, numerous investigations that came out afterwards, one of them being the joint inquiry into the intelligence community activities uh, into the terrorist attacks of September 2001, in which they would issue a final report in 2003. And in one of the um, points they make later on, they say that they went to comment further on how Minneapolis FBI office was irresponsible regarding Savage's uh, FISA warrant, suggesting that there was more than enough evidence to support um, Masawi's links to terrorist activity. In, in one instance, it was when French authorities faxed Masawi's lengthy file to Samet in 2001, connecting Musawi to a group that you mentioned in the book, and probably you're the only book besides um, uh, Hedgehammer's great book that just came out, The Caravan, the Tablighi Jamaat, um, yep. who are a global Islamic missionary and an offshoot of the Sunni revivalist movement, the Diobandi. And they had contacts with members of the Masjid al-Salam in Edmond, the same mosque Masawi affiliated with. Now the report also went out to state that the FBI headquarters had misunderstood, quote unquote, the legal standings in regards to what constitutes a FISA warrant. So I'm going to commit a form of sacrilege here, Mr. Gray, uh, and entertain your speculation if you have any regarding that issue. <coughs> You know, I really hate to, to, to speculate. What? Uh, ask me a very specific question um, on, on on that. I'm um, not sure I completely follow. Now, would, would, it be, would it be more than enough to say that, um, would, would you go the route of malfeasance or a complicit uh, cover-up of misalignment? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I really hate to get into the complicit cover-ups although to me there's different levels of com complicit cover-up. Another modern example would be, okay, look what's going on now with the virus, okay? Almost everybody agrees that it had its origin in China, but then there's some disagreement over, was this something that just occurred in nature or is this something that escaped from a lab? If it escaped from a lab, was that just negligence 
or were were did they literally did, or did the Chinese government literally say we're sending human uh, human biological bombs abroad? Well, I don't have any evidence to say that they did, uh, but at the same time, I think there's enough evidence to say it's reasonable to question just exactly what is that origin and was there any intent to spread it so i wouldn't be prepared to say that that's been proven that could be an act of war so you would need some, you would need overwhelming evidence of that so to me it's the same thing on the 911 you know i i want to stop short sometimes of saying active complicity your your word of malfeasance is a good word you know one you know as an attorney i like because that indicates you know mal meaning you know uh uh, bad or, um, you know, and then you've got non-feasance, which would be kind of like, uh, and then misfeasance. So you've got all these feasances out there. They're, they're all various levels of neglect or bad acting. I think in the case, if we look carefully at the memos that Samit put out and we look at how those were handled and I set all those out in the book exactly, I definitely think you're getting into these various levels of malfeasance, misfeasance, and nonfeasance, kind of depending on, you know, how far you want want to take it. I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say it was complicity, but I would say that sometimes uh, gross negligence and blind negligence, or allowing your own political motives or career motives to um, prevent you from doing your job, you know while that may not be outright complicity it's its first cousin because it is still you know it is still allowing bad things to occur uh because of, of your conduct conduct so i know that is a little bit evasive but i think you would almost have to get into somebody's heart to know exactly what what they were i mean to me when i read all the maltby stuff and you mentioned some of the other names and these individuals in the units you just really wonder, like, what what were they thinking? I mean, what was their motive to not go with this? Uh, were they that politically correct, or did they just have no respect for the work that was done? I mean, I've thought about that. You know, they wind up getting promoted in, in, in the end. So I don't really know what their level of culpability is, but to me, there is a level of culpability with it. And I'll put it to you this way. When I read the story and I see how all this unfolds, you can't expect anybody to be able to tell the future. But if I were drafting a national security team, those people wouldn't be on it. Right. And the reason why I wanted to ask that question was because me and Richard had previously talked about um, the CIA's Alex station, which is a virtual reality station following the activities of Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden um, that was located in um, Maryland. And we saw numerous instances, and this is verified for the record, of not just gross uh, negligence and malfeasance, but also um, in one instance, we could say that they were actually, uh, I could probably make a good argument of covering up uh, information that they didn't want to share with the FBI, who was also working there. Yeah. And we, we interviewed um, one of the uh, FBI agents that worked at Alex Station, uh, Mark Rossini, uh, last year. Um, but going back to Masawi, Masawi uh, in his trial, um, is, he's found guilty of being involved in 9 11 nation, but he declares himself guilty by his own admission and against the advice of his lawyers. Now, there has been rumor that saying that, oh, Masawi is 
are not very smart and he's not very bright, but according to the judge presiding of the case, Al-Masawi is actually very intelligent. And he states that, and this is coming from your book, that he states that he knew more about law than the lawyers that were advising on his case. And he asserts that, Masawi asserts before the court that he was involved in the initial first wave, but then is demoted to a second wave of attacks. And could you give us a brief summary of why do you think he decided to plead guilty right off the bat? Well, first of all, I'm glad you pointed that out because the cover of the book, and I'm looking at it now, I heard you were going on jihad. It also says how a Minnesota FBI agent, Harry Samit, may have prevented a second wave of attacks before 9-11. So my, my book took, took note of the fact that I think guys like Masawi and Alatas were, uh, were potentially part of a um, second wave um, of attacks um, that, that were to um, come. And it's very interesting, you know, Masawi, you know, he obtained certain uh, levels of education. Uh, he had been originally handpicked by bin Laden for this. He'd been allowed to be a recruiter. And then you, these remarkable comments by the judge, which I had to put into the book, these all flew in the face of the things you would read in the media. Well, I knew about this further because when I would talk to some individuals that were at the Norman Mosque about Masawi back then, to me, I got the feeling that they, and I can't prove this, so I'm going to be clear about it, but I got the feeling they had rehearsed amongst themselves on how to talk to people about Masawi because obviously they knew, hey, we're going to get a lot of heat. And I felt that on many occasions that there was a, a, a feeling of rehearsal that was going on. So one of, the, one of the themes that I kept hearing over and over was, well, Masawi was a loner. We didn't know him very well. He was kind of stupid. Uh, you know, he had, he had extreme views that were different from everybody else. You know, and so they were always putting him, really putting him down. But I felt they all kind of said the same thing. I felt they'd been provided talking points on how to describe Masawi. And everybody just started repeating these talking points about this. And I thought, well, if he, if he were such an extremist and such an outsider, then um, wh why is he rooming with Manepta? Why is he with uh, Alatas? It's interesting because we mentioned Makaram Ali, and I'm a little rusty, but I believe I found evidence that he negotiated and purchased a car for a very small amount from Mukarram Ali. I believe he was a roommate with Mukarram Ali for a while. It's like you guys keep rooming with him. You're selling him cars. You're having meals with him at the mosque. It doesn't really sound like he's this much of an, of an out, outsider. And everybody keeps repeating how dumb he is, but all the other official record does not indicate um, that, he, that he's dumb at, at all. So again, my personal opinion was there was a lot of spin and there was disinformation being put out there about Masawi to, to distance himself. And if, if I may just briefly elaborate, this is why I found it such nonsense when later the, one, of, one of the leaders in the Oklahoma City Mosque, and remember there's a lot of interplay between the people that would go to the Norman Mosque and the Oklahoma City Mosque. Many of them knew each other and many of them went to both mosques, such as a guy like Suhaib Webb uh, and others. So another thing that was interesting was 
the, one of the leaders of the Oklahoma City Mosque had told a, a radio station here that he personally met with the Oklahoma City FBI uh, age, special agent in charge, and that at those meetings, he would inform the FBI if, he, if there was anybody that would be a danger, because he says the local Islamic community cooperates with the FBI, and they themselves would be the first ones to tell you that there was a would-be terrorist because they don't want the fallout from having somebody uh, causing trouble. Okay, fair enough, that makes sense. But then my question would be, well, a guy like Masawi comes into town. Well, you guys speak Arabic. You guys are from that part of the world. You would understand that he's radical. He's coming from Pakistan. He's an Al-Qaeda recruiter. By your own statements, he says extreme and wild things and you don't know anything about him. And when I asked the FBI, I said, did they ever, ever tell you before his arrest, did they ever tell you that Masawi was a threat or anything like that? And the answer was absolutely not. So I guess my question would be, if they weren't gonna tell the FBI about Masawi, who are they gonna tell him about? Right, and, and, and just to elaborate a little bit further, a lot of people are not aware about a uh, more than uh, four planes were involved with the attacks. Uh, this is something that was echoed by co-chair of the Joint Committee, Bob Graham, in the final report that they released in 2003, where he even asserts that he believes there were more than uh, 19 hijackers involved. They have instances where there was um, more planes that were involved. And this is something that I also elaborate a little bit further with Richard, and articles I've written as well about the regarding of the potential hijacking of United Airlines Flight 23. That was a plane that was supposed to be taken out of JFK to and land on LAX, Los Angeles International, um, where there were anywhere between three to five Arab men on the plane. And when the plane was heading back to the, the gate at the request of um, the CEO of, of United Airlines, where he says that all the planes were to be uh, downed. And that this was before the FAA uh, declared a national stand down. Um, five men, three to five men, they didn't know exactly, but it was three to five men that got up and started arguing with the stewardess there. And she became alarmed at cold security. And when they left, everybody departed the plane. Uh, the only luggage that was left behind was by these guys. And when they find out what's in the luggage, it was, it was an Al Qaeda manual, box cutters and I think um, uh, Quran was left. But, you know, you can't say that this was a separate issue regarding what was happening uh, throughout the day. It, it was obvious that they were part of the plot. And then this is something also that was elaborated, I think, only by Nelson Martins at the time, um, regarding um, September 13th and 14th, when they lifted the ban of the, um, the FAA, where there was uh, mass arrests of Arab men trying to board the plane. One even dressed as a pilot, trying to get on the plane. Um, and he was a, a relative of none other than Osama bin Laden. We talked about, before we talked here today, you brought up something that was very uh, interesting. It's something very foreign to me. And I had never heard of this individual. And where this was talk about David Bourne, the former senator of Oklahoma, regarding his meeting with C former CIA Director George Tenet. 
this was something I had not heard about prior to you telling me about this. Now, could you give us a rundown regarding Bourne and his meeting that took place on September 11th with George Senate? Yes, that's really one of the more interesting things here because um, David Bourne's background is he's from um, Oklahoma and his father had been a very powerful local politician. So he comes from a somewhat, at least locally, powerful uh, political family. And he's a, David Bourne was a um, exceptionally brilliant man. I mean, he wasn't just smart, he was an exceptionally brilliant guy. So he, but he's from Oklahoma, so he, he winds up going to um, Yale which is interesting because, you know, he, you know, this is the same place as you know, the Bush, the Clinton. So he, he goes and he really establishes, you know, his credentials among the elite. Now I'm not getting conspiratorial and skull and bones, and even though I believe he was a member of that, but in other words, he, he goes to Yale and he becomes a Rhodes scholar. You know, of course, everybody knows, I mean, that's, you know, generally got to be pretty smart to be a Rhodes Scholar. So he's a Rhodes Scholar, and he also is a lawyer. So he's a guy, he's, you know, uh, honor graduate at Yale, Rhodes Scholar, law degree, brilliant legal mind, and very good politician. And as a young man in the late 70s, he comes in to be governor of Oklahoma, and he has a successful term. So he uses that as a platform to run for the United States Senate. He's a Democrat, but at that time he's considered, you know, there used to be the phrase, you know, kind of Dixiecrat, you know, sort of to describe Democrats that were more Southern and a little bit more conservative. So he's not a Democrat in the sense today that we might look at, you know, somebody, you know, who's in the Democrat Party, maybe has, you know, really far left wing views. He was, you know, had some, you know, relatively conservative type views, but he was a traditional Democrat and he gets elected to the United States Senate. Well, in the Senate, he becomes the leader of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and he is the longest running uh, um, leader of the Senate Intelligence Committee ever. And this is during a time like in the 90s, you know, going back from the early 90s, which is very, very interesting because he's there for like, you know, Iran-Contra and the development of Al-Qaeda in the United States. So he is very, very well connected. Now, he's very good personal friends with George Tennant. And David Boren strongly helped George Tennant become the leader of the, uh, or get appointed to be the CIA director. And he, you know, provides, um, you know, Senate testimony at his confirmation and Tennant is in. So this gives Boren you know, pretty good access because not only does he have this strong intel background as the senator, because Bourne winds up resigning from the Senate and because he's named the president of the University of Oklahoma back in the, the 90s. So he comes home to be the president uh, of the university. So he immediately becomes probably the most forward thinking and greatest university president that we've ever had because he 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 really sees past the cold war and he sees the the uh, rise of china so he he has the university of oklahoma he gets all this money in and he just expands the university and it becomes a very international university and he brings in large amounts of international students 
And this guy would have colloquia on campus. And I, I met the crown prince of Jordan there. I mean, this is very common. And Bourne apparently met him at Oxford. So Bourne, he knows Vladimir Putin. He knows the Saudi royals. He knows the Jordanian royals. I mean, this guy knows the world leaders. This is not your average university president. And he's very, very connected you know, to the intelligence community. So he sets up the University of Oklahoma, to my knowledge, was either the only university or one of just a handful of universities that had what were known as diplomat in residence and CIA agent in residence. And what that was, was he had an active duty CIA officer come to the university, you know, to uh, teach classes as well as having a state department diplomat. And again, if you go back and look at the roster of conferences, this guy would have at Oklahoma. I mean, this guy had all, all the world leaders and top government people were coming through here. Uh, and he was promoting a vision of the world that a lot of people criticized because they felt, and again, these are other people's words, not mine, but they felt that Bourne was, was promoting kind of a globalism and that he envisioned someday that there'd be world government and that, and that religion would all be merged into one religion, that he had this real unitarian vision of, of the world. Well, what was very interesting would be in August of 2001, about around, in other words, around the time that Masawi's arrested in Minnesota, he, he brings to the university his new, you know, I guess CIA and resident guy, and I believe it was a CIA agent named David Edgers. And Edgers, you know, by his own admission, that what he'd been doing is he was tracking al-Qaeda cells in Europe. So he's now brought to the university right before uh, 9-11. Now, what was interesting is Bob Woodward, you know, of the famous um, Woodward and Bernstein and Watergate fame, uh, he wrote a book called Bush at War. So anybody can go get that book, you know, online or otherwise and verify what I'm saying. The very first chapter, this is how the book starts. David Bourne is having a leisurely breakfast with CIA director George Tenet at a Washington hotel. And during this breakfast, a Secret Service agent comes and whispers in the Tenet's ear that the World Trade Centers have just been attacked. And so, according to the story, they kind of looked at Bourne's there and Tenet says, it's okay, this is Senator Bourne, you know, he's got a top clearance, you can speak in front of him. And then, according to Bob Woodward, uh, then told Bourne, he goes, you know, I, I'm just hoping or I'm fearing that this somehow is related to Masawi. We've got a six inch thick file from French intelligence on Masawi. So when I read that, I thought that is extremely profound when you put all this together. Because I thought if George Tenet already knows about Masawi and he has a six inch thick file from French intelligence, and, and he's heading the most powerful intelligence organization in the world with all the modern resources. There is no way that George Tenet does not know that Zacharias Masawi operated for six months openly in Norman, Oklahoma. You would not, if he didn't know that, then we've got bigger problems, you know, than anybody might imagine. But of course he had to, to, to know that. My research showed Masawi openly used his name. The local community, Islamic community, often told people they only knew him as Shaquille, but my research indicates Masawi used his real name uh, 
and I document that in the book. So that's another story I, I don't believe, to be honest with you. So, so Tennant would have known that Masawi was in Norman. Well, Tennant also knows that like his one of his closest friends is David Boren, who he's willing to talk freely about 9-11, and he helped get him the CIA job. So to me, is it possible that George Tennant, during the six months or so that Masawi is in Norman, that he never once calls David Bourne and says, hey, David, we've got this Masawi guy. He's living right there, and he's interacting with, with your, your students, right? I mean, I would find that to be very unusual if he, if, if he did not. Then if you throw in some of these stories, such as, you know, David Ergers is now suddenly teaching. Is that, you know, is that just coincidence that he came in August of 2001? Well, I mean, it could be. I mean, I can't sit there and tell you it's not. But I do find that curious that a guy that was tracking al-Qaeda in Europe is there. Now, what becomes more interesting is the largest amount of money that al-Qaeda ever disseminated in one transaction was apparently $32,000 that was wired from Hamburg, Germany, the Hamburg cell, to uh, the Arvest Bank on Main Street in Norman, Oklahoma. I put that in my book. And in fact, I even think I put the transaction number, you know, that I put all the proof of that in there. So this, this, is, this is factual that the Hamburg cell, I mean, uh, Ben al Shibbeth was sending Masawi thousands and thousands of dollars to a Norman bank. So are you telling me that that transaction, you know, was not tracked? You know, why is Masawi getting $32,000 from the Hamburg cell? We know that Ada, Muhammad Ada and Marwan al-Shehi, they're Hamburg cell and they're coming through Norman. So you've got these Hamburg cell connections to Norman, Oklahoma. You've got David Edgers here in August of 2001 that tracks al-Qaeda in Europe. You've got the former head of the Senate Intelligence Committee as the president of OU. He's having uh, breakfast with his best friend when the World Trade Centers are attacked and they talk about Masawi, you know, at at that time, um, as, as possibly being uh, linked uh, to this. I mean, when you put all that together, I mean, that's very, very powerful circumstantial evidence uh, about these guys that, that more was, was, was known. Now, there's an interesting side story to all this, and I almost hesitate to bring it up because if you take this to, to what some people say, and you told me a little bit about it the other day, you enter the world of the unreal. And I try to not do that. I try to stay with what's factual and um, what we can do. But it, it's been widely reported that there was, um, that there were Israelis in Norman that were tracking Al-Qaeda terrorists. Um, I, I can't say that that's 100% true. I don't know for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me. The story was that they set up a kiosk at the Norman Mall. Well, I was... I was in the Norman Mall before 9-11, and there was a kiosk there that there were Israelis that were running it, and they were, they were selling, um, and this was kind of early in the drone game. They were selling these, like, helicopter drones, and they would even uh, demonstrate them in the mall, you know, uh, with drone technology. They were flying up and, up and down. Well, were those guys trying? I mean, I don't know. Some people say that they were. But if you take the other stuff together about David Edgers, David Bourne, Tennant, and all this stuff going on with Masawi, it at least makes sense that that might be true. In other words, 
there's circumstantial evidence to indicate that the major intelligence agencies were on these guys' trails. Now, I stop short for the people say, Boren knew, Boren's power. I mean, I'm not going down that rabbit hole. I'm just saying, let's look at what the situation was. And when you kind of put all that together, I think it's circumstantial evidence that they, that they were, um, again, they, they, maybe they didn't know what they were going to do, but I think they were well aware that they had some dangerous characters in town and that these definitely were catching the attention of the intelligence agencies and that to some level uh, that they were being tracked. Now, were there any, uh, were there any double agents in the Norman mosque? I, I don't know. I have no idea. What's interesting is this Manepta guy. His name seems to come up in all the major terrorist attacks, but he never gets charged or convicted for them. So I had other research tell me they thought Manepta was somebody that maybe was um, um, working that angle. But I mean, I don't have any evidence of that. I only knew him as a guy that was extremely angry about America, but his name came up, um, you know, in the 1993 case in New York. Uh, it was in public papers that his name came up in the Oklahoma City bombing. His name had come up in reference to being part of a violent mosque in St. Louis that stockpiled weapons. And then, of course, he's arrested in Norman after he talks about Massawi. And he's got all kinds of uh, rifles and ammunition in this apartment, and he gets arrested for that. Uh, so I don't know. It's very strange and, and intriguing. Uh, and that's where you can really start, I think, getting off base with some of this stuff because it makes you wonder what was going on. But I try to just stick to the facts and what can be proven. And to me, I'm not going to say that somebody's, you know, uh, complicit or was behind it or part of it without evidence. But it is interesting, um, all those facts that I just gave before 9-11. Right. No, your inquiries are not unfounded because you also had um, Israeli intelligence acting in accordance with uh, moving companies here in New York and in New Jersey um, that were monitoring the Hamburg cell. And you had Saudi intelligence out west, um, Omar al-Bayoumi, Osama Bastan and Fahad al-Thumeri, yeah. who were monitoring and even funding uh, Khalid al-Midar, Nawafa Hasbi and Hani Anjur out west. Um, incidentally enough, uh, while a meeting was going on with Bourne and CIA Director Tennant, uh, there was also a meeting in Washington um, between co-chairs Bob Graham, Portagos, uh, and also with the Pakistan Director, ISI General, Mahmoud Ahmed, um, and they were talking about Osama bin Laden. Um, so a lot of coincidences here regarding on the day itself um, but not to hog the mic any further. Uh, Richard, do you have any questions for uh, Mitchell Gray? Absolutely nothing. I have, I've kept up and it's um, been fascinating. Um, it's, I've, I've you know, learned a lot about uh, the, the details of what was going on there. But no, I, I don't have any, I don't think I can add anything to your questions, Adam. So I'll keep storm if that's right. Oh, that, that's fine. Um, we are cutting it near two hours now, and I'm not going to berate uh, Mitchell any further with any more inquiries. Um, Mitchell Gray, author of I Heard You Were Going on Jihad, um, he told me before we were recording that he is going to be talking to publishers in regarding the publishing of more books uh, in circulation. There is only one that I saw on Amazon. Um, but um, 
I, I really, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I've been trying to get in touch with you for a long time. You're a hard man to get. And thanks to Nelson Martins for contacting you and getting through to me. And really, um, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Well, I, I loved it. And I, this has kind of revitalized me. I'm a little bit rusty on it because, you know, I've just moved on to my Lebanon project and others. But um, um, one thing I wanted to say, what I would like to do, because I'm going to talk on Tuesday or Wednesday of this week to uh, the uh, people that put my book out. And I'm going to see if I can get to where uh, they will have more copies available to print. In other words, what process that is. And when I can find that out and do that, then I would like to get in contact with you. And if it's possible on a, another podcast, whether I'm on it or not, or some way to maybe get that information out uh, if people are interested in the book. I think in the meantime, they can probably find some used copies by looking at some of the other sites that are available. But in the future, if I can get it resurrected, you know, hopefully we can you know, disseminate that information. So I, I think people would be, I didn't write the book for money and um, I want people to read it. So I was thrilled when you and Nelson read it and then finally did get a, get a hold of me uh, because it made it all worthwhile because that's, that's why I did it was to get people discussing it. I didn't have a wild conspiracy theory for anybody. I just have a lot of facts and I had a very unusual, interesting experience myself and I tried to do the best I could uh, for my country, but at the same time, tell the truth about what I know. And uh, I think it's an interesting story and it's an open case and, you know, I just want to get the information out there. So thank you very much for you and Richard for giving me this much time. And I know I give long answers, but you know, this is the type of topic, as we've mentioned before, we could go 24 straight hours on this or longer. So it's hard, it's hard to not get passionate about it. And you want to just get there and, and get it all out. So thank you for being patient with me and giving me wide latitude to um, answer your very good questions. Right. Um, and just to, to add, add to that, um, I, we will definitely love to have you back on and talk about uh, uh, pan-Islamism and its rise to not just abroad, but here in the States as well. And I think that would be a very long extrapolate uh, discussion itself. So I'd love to have you back on. I would be, I would be honored and thrilled. And we'll, sure. we'll talk more about these things. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for coming on, Mitchell. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. Thanks.